hi, hello, my creepy lovelies. Welcome back to another Wednesday. Rex also greets you. Um, this week we are going to cover a multitude of things, so it's going to be what I'm calling a multisode. Um, and it will be done, I originally thought released in three parts, but it's looking more like four to five parts because it's a little complex. Um, before I go any further, I'd like to say hello to Dr. Manhattan, who is here with me. Hello, everyone. And to let you guys know that I got this really cool coffin sound box. So I may at times hit buttons for sound effects and give it a go. It's the perfect thing for a multisode. I also may not. But knowing myself, I'm, I'm going to hit all the buttons. So um, we are here in the podcast office with the dogs. Rex is playing, so if you hear any... Loud noises. That's him. We're giving him a little bit of leeway because it's his second birthday today. So, if you want to wish him happy birthday, go ahead and uh, comment on the Instagram. He thinks. He does thank you. Okay, um, so, we are covering Jack the Ripper. And it's a multisode because part one is going to be... Jack the Ripper and the victims. Part two is going to be the suspects. Who was Jack? Who could have been Jack? Part three is a review of H.H. Holmes and the H.H. Holmes uh, Jack the Ripper theory connection. And then part four, which may be part four to five, is uh, I look into 17 to 18 other serial killers who were dubbed Rippers as well. How many? 17... Look at my board over there! Just, you know, for those that aren't able to view and see and know what's going on (laughs) behind the scenes, that's a lot of suspects. That's a whole other... That's that's 17 to 18 other convicted serial killers who are labeled as ripper killers. That's not even the suspect count. So, um, I do want to caveat that with I've not classified them as such... Uh, the individual who wrote my big book of serial killers, Mr. Michael Newton, did. So, if as we go through, they're not actually rippers, mm-hmm. I won't apologize because y'all are here for true crime anyway. So, I've already got the chills. To be honest. <laughs> okay. Um, I also would like everyone to know if you don't already know me personally, uh, that I've been obsessed with the macabre since a very young age. You know, we watched fucking Scooby-Doo and Cops in CSI Las Vegas growing up. Uh, And then when one of my dads took me to Europe as a teenager, I was the tiny 14-year-old who was, like, most excited to go visit the graveyards and the catacombs. So I'd like everyone to know, although I'm sure most of you already know, uh, I'm not normal. And this has only become, you know, more avid after um, some other stuff has happened. Um... Now that being said, I wouldn't necessarily hello. I wouldn't necessarily say that Jack the Ripper is my favorite serial killer because that's kind of a crude thing to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Angie Holmes case and the Ripper case have been ones that I've like had a long withstanding uh, obsession with, I guess. So um, been reading a lot about them, reading different books, doing a lot of research, going and doing like. In London, they have, like, the Sweeney Todd, Jack the Ripper tour, doing that kind of stuff. Um, I will also state 
I'm sure, as you all know, I am not a historian. I am not an expert. I'm just a weirdo who's been fascinated by the mystery of all this. But more importantly, not a suspect yourself, so it's okay. Correct. Not a suspect myself. So, let's get into it. I'm going to hit one of these buttons. My ghost has quite the diaphragm. <laughs> so it's the, the spring of 1888 in the Whitechapel district in London. Shipyards are running. The King Edward VII is alive and ruling. You know, England is just fucking chugging along uh, until it grinds to a halt with the first Whitechapel murder on the early morning of April 3rd. Uh, in 1888, which actually was a few days after the Easter holiday. Um, Emma Smith was a sex worker who had perhaps not always been a sex worker. Uh, she was violently attacked, and she was attacked at the crossroads of... Oh, my map's too far away. If you want to look at it, it's over there. Um, at the roads of Osborne Street and Brick Lane. Uh, Emma originally survived the assault and walked back to where she was staying, and she told the innkeeper there, Mayor Russell, that she was attacked by a group of two to three men. Um, they got her into the London Hospital. Unfortunately, she later slipped into a coma and died. Um, so, I know I said, she said two to three people attacked her. I'll get into that. I know you're like, Jack the Ripper was one person. You psycho, what the fuck? This one doesn't count. She's also not, you know, one of his five well-known victims. Yes, I know. Let me tell you things about this. So, um... A blunt object had been inserted into her vagina, which ended up rupturing her peritoneum. So it's like the lining of your stomach cavity, and it keeps all of the organs like in your stomach and not like floating away to other pieces of your body. And for some reason, cops didn't even know that Emma had been attacked and died until April 6th. And um, I'd also like to say that a lot of the, because of that, a lot of the case files and evidence like just don't exist on Emma, which is probably why she's not, you know, considered one of the main Jack victims or a Jack victim at all, because um, there's not a lot. So <coughs> they tried to find the murderers, but they had like zero to fucking go on. And obviously they never solved her case. Um, and like I said, many people think that Emma Smith was not a victim of Jack the Ripper. I, on the other hand, have several working theories about who the fuck Jack was. And uh, one of those theories is that Jack the Ripper was never just one man, um, but rather a collective of men who hated women who were working as sex workers or there was a cult. Um, yeah, thank you, Rex. But that's just one of my theories. The other theory I have that I'll get into a little bit later and I'll remind you guys about as we go down is that I think maybe Jack had convinced his friends to jump this lady with him. She died. They got spooked. But he became more intrigued with murder, and he kind of went off on his own. So there is that. But based on that theory, in my brain, Emma Smith, she fits most of the criteria. She was a petite sex worker. She was killed in the general geographical area of where all of the other murders happened. So I consider her victim number one. Um, just getting a drink of my drink here. Howie, what do you think? What are you saying over there, sir? Well, I don't know if this is too much of a spoiler per se, but 
you know, she is regarded as a victim that's included in the Whitechapel murders overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they don't necessarily concede that for sure it was Jack the Ripper, quote unquote, but clearly she was a part of those 11 murders that took place between 1888 1891. Mm-hmm. Why a couple of years for the area? It's a small, concentrated area. It's weird to actually look at a map. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, find a map, look it up, because it's kind of wild how small it concentrated is. all this really is. It's, uh, I think if you just do London 1888 map, and the one Dr. Manhattan pulls up is way better than my crude drawing of it on my murder board over there. Whitechapeljack.com. Mm, there you go. If you want a really great look at the map. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Jack's, you know, he's quiet for a bit uh, until he takes the life of Martha Tabram on August 7th. Um, she was also a sex worker, but she is the victim, the very first people... Backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. She is widely considered to be Jack's first victim by, you know, a lot of other researchers and experts and stuff. I did experts in quotes, but I'll get into that later. Um... And there is more information on Martha than there was Emma. Martha was the youngest of five siblings. She was 5'3 with dark hair, and her dad died in November. So shortly after, she was sent to live with a Henry Samuel Tabram, a former packer at a furniture warehouse. Uh, I think it was more like she was sold to him, but I digress. Uh, She ended up marrying him four years later, and they moved close to her childhood home in 1871. They had two sons, but the marriage was troubled because Martha was a chronic alcoholic, (coughs) or at least so the reports say. Uh, And as a result of this, her husband left her in 1875, but he still paid her a weekly allowance, which, I mean, I guess is similar to alimony. Um, Originally, it was 12 shillings, but he ended up reducing it when he found out she was staying with another dude. And the other dude was her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Henry Turner, who was a carpenter. What is happening? Rex does not approve of this. He doesn't. He's a side piece. He doesn't. (laughs) Um, Martha still being an alcoholic was a difficult, you know, thing to have in their relationship. And so... Are you done? Okay. And so uh, she would often, like, stay out all night, which, you know, that's not usually something you should be, like, doing when you're in a relationship and you're living with somebody, but, you know, some people do it. Um, So we roll around to 1888, and she was without work, so she became a sex worker. Um, And now we kind of get to the night of before her murder, August 6th. So the night before, she was drinking heavily with another woman who was also a sex worker named known as Pearly Paul, like Polly. Sounds like a classy broad. Yeah. Um, gosh, and uh, her name was actually Mary Ann Connolly. And uh, the two met some soldiers at a bar and then left with them. So Martha took her John over to George Yard and Pearly Paul took her client over to Angel Alley. And uh, in the early morning of, I think it's August 7th at this point, uh, a resident, Mrs. Hewitt, was woken up to someone screaming murder. And you're you're going to hear this a lot. Um, but she ignored it because that area was usually loud. A lot of reports and a lot of the murders you hear, or people are, hey, stop. People have claimed that they heard murder, but they ignored it because this was an area that was 
loud. There's a lot of, um, you know, mayhem and chaos and just general degenerates and gangs all kinds of stuff. Gangs are very common in that area, so who knows? Yeah, gangs are common. Prostitution is common. All kinds of shit. Um, but she ignored it. So at 2 a.m., two other residents were returning home, and they said they didn't see anyone in the stairway of the building. Uh, but at 3.30 a.m., resident Albert George Crow was returning home from work, and he saw Martha's body lying on the landing above the first flight of stairs. Um, but the lighting was really poor, so he thought it was just, like, a homeless person sleeping. I hate that. I hate when lighting is poor, and you just think someone's taking a nap, and it turns out to be a brutal murder. I hate that. Well, it's 1888, so the lighting is really fucking poor. It's very bad. Um... And it wasn't until 5 a.m. when a different resident was leaving the building for work that he found her on the landing and was like, oh, fuck, she's dead. Like, ugh. Uh, this resident was Mr. Reeves. He sent for a doctor, thankfully, and Dr. Timothy Robert Killeen uh, came and examined the body. Now, Dr. Killeen discovered that Martha had been stabbed 39 times in her body and her neck. Uh, this included nine stabs to the throat, five to the left lung, two to the right lung, once in the heart, five times in the liver, twice in the spleen, six times in the stomach, and her genitals had also been stabbed. Well, you know, just to make sure it's done. It's fucking madness. Um, she would also be found, as many of the other Ripper, Ripper victims would be found, so she was on her back with her clothes above her waist, um... And her estimated time of death was between 2 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. I do want to remind everyone, this is 1888. They are not good at estimating time of death yet. So just please keep that in mind. Um, finally, somebody notified the actual fucking authorities. So at this point, you know, a resident's only notified a doctor. Nobody's gone <laughs> to get the cops, which seems a little silly, but... Um, the authorities arrive and the officer in charge was Edmund Reed of the H Division Whitechapel of the Metro Police Force. As we get through this story, a lot of their police forces and officers and people in the army have really long titles and things and such. So if I fumble through them, sorry. Uh, they did a lengthy investigation and ended up interviewing a bunch of tower guards because if you look at the map there on the bottom... Uh, the Tower of London is not far from the Whitechapel district. So it was theorized that because she went off with a soldier, maybe it was one of the White, uh, the Tower of London guards. Um, <coughs> uh, one guard identified one soldier and then, and then another and another, but all of those soldiers had alibis, so they were like dismissed as suspects. And of course, you know, Pearly Paul was uncooperative because she's also a sex worker and that's illegal. So she left to go hide with a cousin of hers during the investigation, but she then would come back and kind of cooperate a little bit and said that the, the men they left with wore white cap bands. And apparently those bands are worn exclusively by cold stream guards. I don't know what that means. I didn't look into it. I'm sorry. I have like a zillion pages of notes here. <clears throat> but I do think it's a specific type of guard that applies to obviously some part of the royal police force or army or something. Um, so there's that. Martha's husband was formally identified by her estranged husband on August 14th. And no suspect was ever arrested. So 
again, a lot of people state that Martha should not be considered a ripper victim because her body wasn't eviscerated like the later victims. So here's another theory I have. Um, if Jack is one person, I think, you know, Emma was, okay, what can I get away with? Martha's the, I have all the time in the world. Let's see what I can do. She's the warm up. So he's still trying to figure out his methods. Well, in four months between Emma Smith and Martha Tavern, is interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's also kind of interesting that some people think that Martha was the Ripper's first victim. Mm-hmm. But then others, because of how she was killed and not being so precise, you're like, eh, maybe he wasn't really that good or happy then. Well, don't a lot of people think Annie Chapman was his first victim? It's almost like every time there's a killing, they're like, no, no. Wasn't it? This was the first one. Mm. So, um, but I think, you know, at this point with Martha, he's getting satisfaction in the kill. And with so many stab wounds and something like that, like he's a blitz attack killer. Mm. He's always going to be a blitz attack killer. <clears throat> but I do think that there's some room for the argument of sexual sadism with the different types of mutilation that's done to her body as well as other victims. Also, like, she is a sex worker. So there's that angle. Uh, And most... um, Not all. It is more likely that sexual sadists will use a knife to murder because it's supposed to be, like, in a lot of research, it's an extension of their dick. I put phallus in the notes, but I I don't know if anybody's going to know what the fuck that is. Um, Because they can't, like, get an erection without seeing the fear in somebody else or drawing blood or torturing somebody or being in total control of deciding if someone can live or die. Sucker. Yeah. Well, and then in some cases they won't get fully satisfied. Like they won't complete the ritual until their victim is dead. And in some cases, if they kill too quickly or they don't complete their ritual, then they're not satisfied and they go get another victim in the same night. Just kind of depends. Um, excuse me. There is also this idea of peakerism, which is the sexual arousal of wielding a knife, specifically, and drawing blood of your partner. Um, I do, in parts of the BDSM community, there is knife play, but I am not qualified to speak on that. So that I don't. I think they're two specifically distinct, different things, but they fall under the same like overarching. Knives, blood, sexual arousal thing. Yeah, there's, there's some trends. Yes. So, we're in August. Two victims. No suspects. No arrests. We have no idea what the fuck is going on. And the other thing we have to remember is how I talk about a lot in here and on Black Widow and the Banshee, you know, it's 1888. Officers aren't communicating with each other. They're not spreading knowledge between departments. They didn't even do that in fucking, like, 1980, 1970, so there's no way they were doing it in 1888 either. So just keep that in mind. Excuse me. So now we're on to the infamous uh, Marianne, Polly Nichols, victim uh, number one. Quote, unquote. To some researchers and theorists of Jack the Ripper. Um, And she... Died on August 31st. Sorry, I have to take a drink of water. Here, enjoy this while I drink. 
broke my straw. Okay, are you done, little box? Thank you. Um, so Mary Ann Nichols was born Mary Ann Walker, and it's reported that she was born on August 26, 1845, in Soho, London. Uh, she was the middle of three children, born to a locksmith and a laundress. She was 5'2", brown-eyed brunette. I don't know about the eyes, but most of Jack's victims are between 5'1 to 5'5". Five, five. I think one is 5'6", and uh, five of the seven of them are brunette, I think. So he's got a type for the most part. Um, <clears throat> at the age of 18, she married a printer's machinist, which is someone who sets up and works on the printing presses for books and newspapers. Um, she, his name was William Nichols, and they married on January 16th in 1864 at St. Bride's Parish, Parish Church, which was witnessed by their friends Seth, Seth George Heavily, and Sarah Good. And for a time, the couple lived at 31 Bovary Street, and then they ended up moving in with Mary's, Marianne's dad over on Trafalgar Street. Um, they had five childrens, which is a lot of childrens, <coughs> from uh, 1866 to 1879. They had Edward John, Percy George, Alice Esther, Eliza, Sarah, and Henry Alfred. <sighs> Uh, <laughs> so, uh, things were good for Marianne for a while, until about September 6th in 1880, and things kind of started to fall apart. So the couple moved to a new home at 6D Block at uh, the Peabody Buildings off Stamford Street, and after the move, William and Marianne would separate. Uh, William took four kids with him, but not, not all of them. I think one, you know, grew up and moved out. But uh, apparently they split up because William had been having an affair with the nurse who helped give, helped um, Marianne give birth to Henry Alfred, their youngest. I think he's the youngest. Yeah. And he swore up and down that the affair didn't start when it did, but I looked at the math and the birth of Henry Alfred and the separation date and he, there's, there's no way. He's a liar. So, uh, he would tell people... Sorry. He would tell people that the marriage fell apart because his wife was a heavy drinker and he only stepped out of the marriage to have the affair after his wife had already left him. So, real winner that one. Uh, he would also later tell authorities the same thing. His wife was an alcoholic. She became a prostitute, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, so from 1880 to 1888, Marianne started to rack up a criminal record, which included offenses as... Drunkness, disorderly conduct, prostitution. Um, things that a lot of the victims would later also have criminal records on. What if he's a cop? Mm. Oh, sorry. <coughs> oh, sorry. Um, little side theory? Yeah. Okay, let's put a pin in that. Holy shit. What if he's a cop? Sorry, I won't get to it with the other victims, but in a lot of the cases, like, so 
police officers in London in 1888, they're doing their beats or their rounds by foot. And they're in localized areas. And the beats take between 15 to 20 minutes to walk the whole fucking beat. So a lot of the victims were, you know, the officer said, no one was here when I was last here 15 to 20 minutes ago. And now I'm back here and here's a body. Only somebody in the department would know the times in which those beats start, how long those beats are, unless Jack is just, you know, crazy thorough. Or he's one of those higher up people who's paying costs off. I don't know. Anyway, <coughs> food for thought. Um, so they're separated. Marianne's, you know, doing all kinds of stuff not legal, they're not together. Um, and then, you know, from 1880, when they separated to 1882, uh, her ex-husband was required to pay the alimony, but he was able to stop paying because he was able to prove in court that Marion was earning money through prostitution. So, <clears throat> she's not getting a full income anymore. So from 1882 to 1888, she, you know, is working more as a sex worker, living off charitable handouts and, you know, money she makes from sex work. She often spent most of her money on alcohol, which tracks, you know, the alcoholism. And uh, in 1887, she started a relationship with a widowed man and father of three, Thomas Stewart Drew, but they only dated until uh, October of that year. By December of that year, she could be found at the Lambeth workhouse. And so, you know, she's trying to straighten up, get some stuff together. She's working at a workhouse. And in April of 1888, the matron of the Lambeth workhouse, a lady named Mrs. Fielder, was able to find Marianne like better employment as a domestic servant to a Mr. and Mrs. Cowdery in Wadsworth. So she wrote home to her dad and was like, hey, I'm doing better. Things are looking up. I'm starting to get my shit together. Um, however, <coughs> her employers were what is referenced in a lot of the research as teetotalers, which I think are like really religious people who don't believe in drinking. So um, that really didn't work for her. So they, she, you know, she only worked there for three months. So after that, she ends up at a lodging house at 18 Thrall Street, where she was sharing a room and a bed with elderly Nellie Holland, uh, but she would later relocate to a different lodging house at 56 Flower in Dean Street in Whitechapel on August 24th. <clears throat> so she's in the Ripper Zone. She's already there. Um, and on August 30th at 11 p.m., Marianne was spotted walking along the Whitechapel Road, and it was stated that she had been at the Frying Pan Pub until about 20 past midnight. So that's 12:20. I don't know why I wrote it like that. Anyway. Um, and then at 1.20, it's reported that she went back to her boarding house where a while after returning, the owner of the boarding house was like, yo, where's your money? <clears throat> she was like, I don't have it. And so I was like, okay, get the fuck out. So she left the lodging house, presumably to, you know, go prostitute herself out in order to come back and pay for a bed. And she was last seen alive by Emily Holland. I originally thought that Emily and Nellie were the same person. They are not. I digress. <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, Emily said that Marianne was walking down Osborne Street at 2.30 a.m. and that she was, like, super drunk and she slumped on a grocery store, just, like, chilling. And so Emily was like, okay, hey, like, you're drunk. Like, come back and stay with me. Like, let's get you sober. But Marianne just walked off, told her to get fucked, basically. And so at 3.40 a.m., Charles Allen Cross found what he originally thought was a tarp. But as he got closer, he discovered it was the body of a woman in front of a gated stable at the entrance of Buck Row. <clears throat> um, the stable was 150 yards from London Hospital. And Marianne lay on her back with her eyes open, skirt raised above her knees, and hand, like, touching the stable gate. So she was, like, touching a part of the building. Mm. Um, another man showed up on his way to work Robert Paul um, and Cross was like hey come here like I need to I need somebody to witness that I like didn't do this kind of a thing like come look at this body with me me. yeah (laughs) Um, and so they examined the body and then they would tell police when they went and got them that you know her face was warm but her hands were cold so rigor hadn't set yet Cross thought, you know, that she was definitely dead, but Paul was like, no, she might just be unconscious. So they pulled her skirt down and then they went to go get the cops. And after the cops came with them, they like just went on their way to work. Which I always thought was kind of strange. Because like, wouldn't you have a pass off of work that day if you just like discovered a dead body on your way into work? You think. Mm, Yeah. So (coughs) Um, cops are on their way. But before the constable Meezen got to Buck's Row, PC John Neal said that he found the body. So they, so I think what happened is they went off to get the cops and another cop on his beat came upon the body. And then they all, they're all there at the same time at some point. So, but when uh, PC John Neal got to the body, he said her throat was cut. And so everybody is back at the body, and they indeed saw that Marianne's throat had been cut. So they're like, shit, we need a surgeon, we need a team, we need everybody. And so Dr. Lewin? Yeah. Maybe? Lots of L's. There's there's four L's. L's than you could possibly imagine in this last name. God. Uh, Dr. Lewin arrived on scene at 4 a.m. and also observed two deep neck wounds and declared her dead at that point. So definitely dead. Uh, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah, dead. The excerpts on the postmortem are uh, a bit insane. Have you seen the photos? Oh, God. They're so bad. My drink is leaking. Oh, leaky drink. Mm-hmm. Um, again, parts of her body were warm, so he said maybe she had been dead for 30 minutes. Again, they're not good at telling one time of death is. So, just remember that. Uh, And so if you do the math back from when he got there, 4 a.m., if she was dead for 30 minutes, those two dudes found her at like 3.40. So his math is already off. Just, like, yeah. Anyway, um, she would have been entirely warm at least in my brain, if she had been dead for only 10 minutes before being found. I'm not a scientist. That's just my theory. So, uh, Dr. L, I'm not saying his full fucking name again. (laughs) Just so you know. Um, Then had her body moved to the mortuary so he could properly examine her. 
While her body was being moved, many people were being questioned, including all of the residents of Buck Row. But again, none of them were able to provide any information. They didn't see anything suspicious. They didn't hear anything suspicious. Um, so they have no fucking leads at this point. And when they were examining her body, they found that the side of her face had been bruised uh, post-death and that cuts of the side of her cuts on her throat were from left to right, which is going to be consistent throughout all the victims. Uh, one of which was eight inches long. The other one is four inches long. And both went as deep as to reach her vertebrae. That's another piece of consistency for most of the victims who have their throats slashed. Okay, I don't like reading this part. Um, her vagina had been stabbed twice. So now, you know, he's staying consistent in that. And her chest cavity had been mutilated. There was one jagged and deep wound that was two to three inches from her left side. And her body cavity had been stabbed so many times that her intestines were just like protruding out of them. So we've escalated from stabbing all of those specific organs to just fucking blindly stabbing in the chest cavity. Okay, cool. Um, they estimated that all of these cuts were done with the same knife and that that knife had to be at least six to eight inches in length, I think, to get that deep. And they said that the knife had been inserted in a violent manner and then thrust downwards. So almost like he was on top of her when he was inflicting this damage. And then this is the first time that somebody says that the murderer must have some basic anatomical knowledge. I do think that if they had thought about Martha Tabram as an original victim, they would have already known that. But perhaps it's tough because a lot of her stab wounds seemingly were done with like a much smaller knife and not necessarily in such, you know, almost like organized, precise fashion. So I think they just didn't think it could be the same person. But Possible. if you go by one of your theories, which is that this was like an initial, let me have fun with some gang friends and that turned more into, oh, I actually like this. And if she was maybe the second one that he killed, it mm -hmm. makes sense that there's this progression from attacking and raping the first one, Emma, to stabbing the hell out of Martha, and then suddenly we're mm -hmm. mutilating people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. L stated that the damage was probably done within four to five minutes, but he was surprised at the lack of blood at the crime scene. Um, due to the extent of her injuries, there should have been way more. So I think because a lot of those wounds were inflicted after she was dead, there wasn't as much blood spatter because it's coagulating, it's like slowing down. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. L also stated that he thinks Marianne was facing her attacker and that he held his hands to her mouth to silence her before cutting her throat. And he said the injuries, like I said, to her stomach were made after she died and that would account for the lack of blood found at the scene. Maybe. Yeah, well, also the fact that nobody really heard anything. Because if they're saying she had been killed, <coughs> given her take within a half hour or so of being found, mm -hmm. like how would someone have not heard anything? Nobody hears anything in this fucking area of Whitechapel, apparently. Uh, Marianne's body was identified by Emily and later her ex-husband and they opened an inquest and had a fuck ton of people testify including Mary's dad, the doctor 
Um, and Emily's dad stated that like he hadn't seen her since Easter and she had no enemies. Excuse me. They um, then interviewed all the officers to establish a timeline as well as Cross and Paul, those guys who just found her. <laughs> Cross was a suspect for a long time and we'll get back into him when we get to the suspect portion, but they had asked him like when they reported the body to the policeman, like why didn't he tell them about the cuts to her throat? And he was like, dude, it was too dark. I didn't fucking see them. Like, I didn't see him. Um, So there's that. They do three whole days of testimony, a full review of medical evidence, but it was concluded that, you know, Marianne had been murdered, which I think it's so interesting that they do all these inquests to conclude that somebody was murdered. That part never makes sense to me, but um, anyway, they also concluded that she was murdered where she was found and, you know, everyone was just kind of baffled that her murderer continued undetected because of the damage done to her body. Like he would have been absolutely fucking soaked in blood. Like how did he just get away? Um, the coroner Baxter, who was leading the inquest of this case referenced the murders of Annie Chapman, as well as Emma Smith and Martha Tabra. But he said all four victims were middle-aged married, but lived apart from their husbands consequence of intemperate habits and were, at the time of death, leading an irregular life. However, he conceded the injuries sustained to the victims were similar, but he said only the same weapon was used in Chapman and Mary Ann's murder. And he said the ones in Emma and Martha's murder were very different. So again, like I say a zillion times this whole fucking episode... It's possible he's still perfecting his skill set. He's trying different knives, you know, until he settles on one blade. And even then, it might be a when he's fleeing the scene, he loses the blade he likes and he has to get a different one. There are all of these different possibilities. Ultimately, they couldn't find a guilty party and Marianne... Okay, okay, okay. That makes sense. Sorry. Um, I was like, why the fuck is he talking about Annie Chapman? But then I remember the inquest is happening after Annie's body has already been found. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which we're just getting to. Yep. Um, anyway, obviously they couldn't find the guilty party. Nobody was arrested. Uh, Marianne was buried in the city of London Cemetery in a numbered grave until 1996 when a bunch of people were like, uh, hello, what the fuck? And they gave her a proper marker. Um, it kind of baffles me that her grave went on that long without having her name on it, but it is what it is. Um, let's look at the time. 39 minutes. Okay, so following the murder of Marianne, a.k.a. Polly Nichols, on August 30th, early morning of the 31st, in 1888. The Ripper strikes again on September 8th, 1888, with uh, victim number four, Annie Chapman. Born Eliza Ann Smith on September 25th in 1840, the eldest of five kids to parents, to parents, parents, yep, that's the word, sorry, George Smith and Ruth Chapman. 
Uh, her dad was a soldier in the second regiment of lifeguards and therefore her early life was spent moving around a lot, um, mostly between London and Windsor. And Annie was born out of wedlock and her parents got married two years after her born. She was born. Yeah, that's what I wrote. Um, which is interesting. Her siblings reported that she became an alcoholic at an early age and they tried many times to get her to stop, but she always relapsed. And before I go any further, that is an indication to me of early childhood trauma. There is... There's no reason a child is drinking alcohol and then becoming an alcoholic outside of trauma, in my personal opinion. So, um, where are we? Excuse me. Oh, 1861. Her family moved to Cluer, but Annie stayed behind in London. Some think it's because she had a job as a domestic servant, and so obviously she had stayed to keep working. Uh, her dad then became a personal valet to Captain Thomas Naylor Leland. These people have a lot of names. Of the Devonshire Yeomanry Calvary. Okay. Uh, but on June 13th, 1863, he went with his boss on a horse racing event slash trip, and they stayed overnight. But um, overnight on the trip, he ended up uh, slitting his own throat and committing suicide. So, there's that. Um, many of Annie Chapman's associates would say that she was a focused and intelligent woman when she was sober. <clears throat> um... Annie stood at five feet tall with dark wavy hair and blue eyes. And on May 1st in 1869, she marries John Chapman. Apparently he was related to her mom. Not sure how, but related nonetheless. And they were married at All Saints Church in London. Excuse me, which was witnessed by her younger sister, Emily Letitia, and her husband's friend, George White. And they would live in a number of residences. And... Da, 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 da. Number of residences. And her husband worked in the service of a nobleman on Bond Street. They had three kids, two girls and a boy. Uh, the boy, John Alfred, was born crippled. And they originally sought medical care, but ended up placing him in an institution for the physically disabled close to Windsor. And there are some people who think that her son's disability is a result of Annie's alcoholism. Although she would swear up and down that she was sober when she had him. Which, I mean, when you had him and when you cooked him, like, that's nine months. You could have been totally sober when you had him. A lot of time in between, though. Yeah. So, in 1881, a family relocates to Windsor, and John takes a new job as a coachman to a farm bailiff named Josiah Weeks. And their family lived in the attic rooms of the farm cottage. And uh, a year later, their eldest daughter, Ruth, died of meningitis at the age of 12. And after Ruth's death, both John and Annie became alcoholics to cope. And Annie would be arrested several times for public intoxication, but there's no actual, like, records of those arrests. Nobody can find them. Probably weren't well kept. Anyway, 
Um, so as you can assume, Annie and her husband separated in 1884. John took custody of their surviving daughter because their other son is in that place in Windsor. And Annie went back to London. Um, he had to pay her alimony weekly. But in 1886, John resigned from his job due to failing health, and he would later die of liver cirrhosis and edema on Christmas that year. And, uh, you know, he's not alive, so he can't pay the alimony anymore. Ten shillings a week. Yes. That's what she was getting. Yeah. But if he's dead, he can't pay it. Right. So, Just saying. Yeah. That's what she lost. Um, Annie's daughter then went to go live with her grandma in Knightsbridge, and Annie learned of her husband's death through her brother-in-law. So after separating from her husband, she moved to Whitechapel living off the alimony. And in 1886, she was living with another man who made wire sieves for a living. And I think the closest thing I can think to think of that's similar to a wire sieve is like a strainer. A siever. I don't know. <laughs> um, but they broke up after he learned that Annie wouldn't be getting any more money. Because, you know. Classy man. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of Annie's friends said that Annie became like deeply depressed after the breakup. She didn't know what the fuck to do with herself. Um, oh, I'm so sorry, guys. <sighs> um, so around the summer of 1888, Annie had been living at 35 Dorset Street at the Crossingham Lodging House. And there she was paying for a double bed. And according to the guy who ran the place, she occasionally had a, a male visitor. And that dude was Timothy Donovan, age 47, a bricklayer and layer of other things, apparently. Um, and he sometimes would pay for their room. And the guy who ran the lodging house also said that Donovan would usually come and stay from Saturday to Monday. So he's a weekender. Um, he also said that Chapman was crocheting and selling flowers to try to make money, but sometimes she had to supplement with sex work. So, um, what's interesting about Annie is at this place of lodging, she had a couple of fights with a bunch of, you know, some other residents. One in particular was Eliza Cooper. And one time they were reportedly fighting over the affection of a different man. But when asked about it later, Cooper would say that they were fighting over the fact that Annie borrowed soap without being asked. And when Cooper asked her for the soap back, Annie threw a half penny on the table and told her just go buy more fucking soap. A half penny. Half penny. Not a whole penny. Half penny. Only a half. Well, I don't know how much soap costs them, but yeah. Um, and then later, they would have a physical altercation at a, a pub, and Cooper not only gave Annie a black eye, but she bruised her boob. I mean, she was known as Dark Annie, so it kind of works out. Yeah. Um... Excuse me. The day before her death, uh, her friend Amelia Palmer said she ran into Annie on Dorset Street, but she was like super fucking pale. And Annie had told her that she had just been discharged from Whitechapel Infirmary like earlier in the day and she still felt ill. And apparently her autopsy showed that her lungs and her brain membranes were like riddled with disease. And it was so advanced that she would have like died months later, even if she hadn't been murdered. So there's that um the day after september 8th that's not right because she died on september 8th please hold okay so this is either september 7th 
or the early morning of September 8th. I think it's late September 7th and this bleeds into September 8th. Um, Tim and the night watchman of the lodging house said that Annie didn't have money to cover her bed for the night and that she was in the kitchen drinking a pint with the fellow lodger, uh, Frederick Stevens. And she stated that, you know, she had five shillings after a visit with her sister, but the bed she was renting cost eight. So close. So she then... This is about two in the morning. Yeah. She then took a pillbox out of her... uh, This? Was it two in the morning? So she ends up heading out close to two in the morning is what I'm leaning to. Okay. So on September 7th. Well, so what she's found. Okay. Cause what I have here is that, you know, she took a pill box out of her pocket box broke. She wrapped them up in some envelope paper and then left the property, but she came back at 1.30 to the lodging house with a baked potato, which I remember very specifically because it was very strange. Then she ate the baked potato and left again. Yeah, that ends up. What I'm seeing says around 1.50 a.m. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then um, everybody from the boarding house last saw Annie walking towards the Spitafields Market, and she told Tim, like, hey, keep that bed for me. I'm not going to be gone long. Um... And just this random lady, Miss Elizabeth Long, said that she saw Annie talking with John around 5.30 a.m. in the area of um, the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. And Miss Long said that John was over 40, slightly taller than Annie. He had dark hair, um, but that, like, he was foreign, but had, like, a shabby, high-born appearance. And I was trying to figure out what the fuck that meant. And I think it means, like, he's well-dressed, but the clothes aren't clean. That's the only thing I can think of. And this is 1888, correct? Yes. Um, she said he was wearing a brown, low-crowned hat. So think of, like, the, the hat from Mr. Robinson's, like the evil hat. And uh, she, he was maybe wearing a dark coat. And apparently she overheard them talking and a snippet of the conversation she recalled was that the John asked Annie, will you? To which she replied, yes. Uh, But another witness at 5 a.m. said he didn't see jack shit in the yard of 29 Hanbury Street because he had gone to confirm his cellar back there was still padlocked, which it was. And a neighbor over at 27 Hanbury Street, Albert Kadosh, had also entered the yard to pee. But he heard a woman say no, and then the sound of something falling against the fence of 27 and 29 Hanbury, but he didn't investigate the sounds, because again, nobody fucking investigates the sounds. But her body was found a little after that, around 6 a.m., by an elderly resident, Mr. John Davis. So I think what is likely is Elizabeth had her time frame off, and she wasn't sure about the address. Hmm. What are you thinking? What's that face? This is this is actually my own theory. Well, not a theory, but kind of an interesting detail that I think is, is a little bit wild because during this time period, there were Wild West shows taking place. Oh, that's right, yeah. In Windsor. Yep. Uh, why does that matter? Well, what's interesting is it got to the point where they were so curious about who might be doing all these vicious crimes and murders that they started arresting and interviewing and interrogating American Indians. 
because they were basically just along for the ride at these Wild West shows. So kind of those details that she gave about who she saw or just mm-hmm. like talking to, it's just interesting because you could almost argue that that might describe someone with a show or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. This, the whole fucking thing is crazy. Yeah. whole thing is fucking bonkers. Um. And also what's weird is these locations, it's like, they're like weirdly wide open spaces, but also like, because of how everything was built at the time, everything's like almost stacked on top of each other, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a weird scenario where you almost have these like streets that are more like alleyways mm-hmm. to where, of course, no one really sees something incredibly clear. Or Well, and I've got a big ass circle on my version, my poorly drawn version of the map to try to show like he either worked or lived in the central area of that whole section because geographic profiling, that's what makes the most sense. He's attacking in this one area of Whitechapel. It, there's no way he didn't work or live in that area. There's no way. Yeah. Well, and it's, but it's, that's what's interesting, though. Is like it's, it's a small enough area that he wouldn't have had to either. Yeah. Really? So here, show me the map. The real one. So. Photo of the map. Oh, <laughs> well, you're sitting right next to me. So I think... Remember, I have that theory about the London Hospital that I'll get into later. So I think, because everybody's all the way out here, that he actually lives somewhere closer in this middle area. And that's why he doesn't ever go this far, because it's too close to his place of work if he's a doctor. It's interesting, though, how many murders, even though they're not officially considered ripper killings, there mm-hmm. are to that area. Yeah. Right? Well, and the other thing that's interesting, too, is, is that... 1888 is a time where sex workers don't have pimps yet. They don't have protection. No gators out there yeah. at this point in history. No. Get. Um, so there's nobody who is killing them because they weren't paid for protection either. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you all about how poor Mr. John Davis found... Who am I talking about? Annie Chapman. Annie Chapman. Um, but first, I'm gonna. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. Okay, and I think we're back. That says recording, right? That's what I'm seeing. Okay. Hello. We're back. All right. So, um, poor Mister John Davis has found Annie Chapman's body. Crack it. We do it all the time on Blackwood on the Banshee. Get into it. Um, Like the victims before her, she lay on the ground with her body very close to the property she was found by. The old man found three other men in close proximity on their way to alert the police. They ran into another one and reported the incident to him. I say another one, I mean another cop. And so they're... Uh, They ran into Divisional Inspector Joseph Looney's Chandler, who followed them, and then he sent for Dr. George Baxter Phillips and more cops. Uh, Phillips arrived at the crime scene at 6.30, where he quickly established a link between Annie Chapman and Marianne, as he noted that there were two deep throat wounds from left to right, as well as the mutilated chest cavity. 
and he stated a blade of similar size was used in both murders. Um, this crime scene had blood spatter on the house and, sorry, the house steps and the fence, and some were 18 inches off the ground, so that means it was, she was likely standing, um, when she was attacked. <clears throat> I'd also like to say it would have been better to use the same doctor in all these cases, but they didn't, so, um, anyway, they found the pills that they said at the boarding house she wrapped into that envelope piece, um, like, in her leather apron, it was for her medical condition. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. She found, they found the pills on her, hmm. and they found a leather apron in the vicinity of the yard. <coughs> and now a lot of you are like, ah, the leather apron. The infamous ripper apron. Ah. Um, the apron. No. <laughs> that doesn't sound <laughs> Nope, it does not. So, to summarize, the apron caused, like, a fuck ton of drama and led a Jewish, Jewish butcher to being accused by a lot of newspapers as being the, Jack the Ripper. Um, he filed a slander lawsuit and won. Good for the Jew. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, per usual, they opened an inquest. They had a bunch of people talk about Annie's character and her list of activities and the past separation of her husband. And then day three of the inquest uh, is the medical piece. And this is reportedly directly from Dr. Phillips' testimony that day, and I'm going to read it word for word. Hang on to your butts. Hold on. Okay. Um, the left arm was placed across the left breast. The knees were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen, turned on the right side, and the tongue protruded between the front teeth. Yeah, okay. Uh, but not beyond the lips. Oh. That's strange. The tongue was evidently very swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar top and bottom very fine teeth they were. Okay. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs were not marked, but was evidently commencing. Uh, I noted that, that the throat was severe. I noted that the throat was dissevered deeply. They talked strangely. They did. <laughs> What the fuck? Just severed deeply, the throat was. Mm. That the incision through the skin were jagged and reached right round the neck. On the wooden, wooden paling between the yard in question and next smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. It's just... There were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above where the body from the neck lay. I should have just condensed this instead of reading it. It's making my brain hurt. The instrument used at the throat and the abdomen were the same. It must have been a very sharp knife with a thin, narrow blade, and it should have been at least six to eight inches in length, probably longer. I should say that the injuries could not have been inflicted by a bayonet or a sword bayonet. They could have been done by such an instrument, in instrument as a medical man used for postmodem post-mortem purposes, but the ordinary surgical cases might not contain such an instrument. In <sighs> instrument. Jesus. Those used by slaughtermen, well ground down, might have caused them. Uh, I thought the knives used by those in the leather trade would not be long enough. There are indications of anatomical knowledge. I should say that the deceased had been dead at least two hours and probably more when I first saw her. But it was right to mention that it was fully a fairly cool morning that the body would be 
more apt to cool rapidly from having lost a great quantity of blood. There is no evidence of a struggle having taken place, and I am positive the deceased entered the yard alive. A handkerchief was round the throat of the deceased when I saw it in the morning, and it was not tied on the throat after the throat was cut. Pain in the ass. So, excuse me. Um, Annie's throat had been cut just like Marianne's twice and so deeply that he nicked her vertebrae. What is yes? Okay. Um, however, she had been disemboweled to such an extent that he, like, slung part of her stomach, like, over her shoulder, and her smaller intestines were removed and draped over the other shoulder, so her hands on her breast, her intestines and all kinds of things are over her shoulder, her uterus and her bladder are fucking missing, and her tongue was swollen, like they stated, that may have indicated she was strangled. Um, the doctor also confirmed her lung disease, and that she was indeed sober at the time of the attack, which I think is interesting. Uh, he also would later state, nope, I already read that, so... Uh, Annie Chapman was buried in a communal grave in Manor Park Cemetery in London, and the exact location of her final resting place is unknown, because again, communal grave. Um, so here we are. Four bodies. Six month time span. He's ramping up. And I say ramping up because most of us know that there are not one, but two murders that happen on August 31st. Mm. So. He's going, you know, for three murders total in the month of August. He's accelerating, he's taking more risks, more people have seen him a little bit, more people are hearing some stuff. Um, now he's taking organs. Yeah, this one was weird because it was certainly worse than the previous murder in terms of the mutilation. Oh. But also, uh, her belongings were reportedly like arranged near the body. Mm-hmm. And some things were missing, so she had rings that she had been wearing that were apparently gone, presumed taken by the Ripper perhaps, but there's definitely a progression in like how this is happening, what's being done, and how they're being left. I was taking trophies, because you know, the living organ trophies are only going to last so long. True. Got to get those in waters and some jars, pretty sure. Maybe. I'm assuming, folks, just from what I've seen on TV, just in case someone out there is like, hmm, Dr. Manhattan sounds pretty shady himself. Yeah. How would he know that? Oh, okay, let's check the time. All right, we still have Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly, and Francis Cold Cover. Uh... Do you have an opinion? We're over an hour. We have four victims left. I think we say, huzzah! Part one of part one stops here. The beginning of the multisode. Yes. Okay. Let's pick a fun noise to end the multisode. Um, you guys will get the next four victims in the next episode, which we'll release uh, next week. I would apologize, but I don't care. Stick around. Um... For the next part, for like I said, for the murders of Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly, and Francis Cole, um, please don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, do all the things. Uh, some photos will be up on the Creepy Cryptid podcast Instagram. Um, 
I'm going to be selective in my photos since this is a multi-sode. So one, maybe one to two photos will go up per part of the multi-sode. So thanks for hanging out, guys. And here is your goodbye song before the goodbye song. Let's do... Ha!